one. And we are recording with the one and only, the legendary Mr. Richard Rhodes covering Hell and Good Company. Mr. Rhodes, please introduce yourself for all the new listeners. So I'm uh, Richard Rhodes. I'm a professional writer. I published 26 books. Best known is probably called The Making of the Atomic Bomb. But I think the one we want to talk about today is in some ways a much more fun story in its own darkness. And that is a book called Hell and Good Company about the Spanish Civil War. Can you maybe, so, you know, Scientist was was definitely a, a, a break from the rest of your books. But second only to that, this one seems like kind of out of left field mm-hmm. in comparison. What, what, why this? It's kind of odd. I was, I have been for many years collecting pieces of information about the year I was born, 1937, thinking someday I would assemble something out of all that data. I mean, that was the year of the Hindenburg, for example. So it was quite an interesting year. Uh, and I was born, you know, it's like that line in the beginning of Moby Dick, where he lists all the big headlines in the world. And down at the bottom is a little one that says, so-and-so goes to sea. <laughs> so it's that sort of thing. But I kept coming across stories about the Spanish Civil War, and I got more and more interested, not only for the regular stories everyone has heard, because they've read Hemingway and others, and and uh, George Orwell, but also because of the technological breakthroughs that occurred in medicine in particular. We we need to talk about that, but the development of stored blood was one outgrowth of the Spanish Civil War. So I got interested and, and I proposed it to the Sloan Foundation when I was looking for a grant to support the writing and they they signed on. It's a little out of their left field too, because they tend to focus on physics and chemistry rather than medicine. But all told, I mean, it was also the year when when uh, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, invented area bombing with the famous bombing of the Spanish city of Guernica, which mm. Picasso then did a famous painting about. And, and so the, it was a rich, rich event. It it does almost seem theatrical. When yeah. Like when they're, you know, it almost seems like something out of like a, a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. When it's like we looked over like the window ledge and like a bullet cracked and we were like, oh, that must have been a mistake. And then another one cracked by and it's just kind of like you should go about your left crawling around, pause a little bit, let it smack the wall, smack the wall, keep going about it. And it kind of draws up this this whole drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Well, let me quote the the hell and good company. This is from the. Uh, unpublished memoir. It should be published. It exists. It's complete. Just got lost in the Second World War. But this doctor was over there working for the Republican side, the good guys, if you will, against the the fascists led by uh, uh, the Generalissimo Francisco Franco. and was writing about the experience of war. And he says at some point, war is hell with all of the existential meaning of that word. But it's also good company. 
So the title of the book is Hell in Good Company. And there is that feeling about it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and if you can't tell, it's, I'm still kind of having trouble really understanding what the book was. And that's not like a critique of the book. I, whenever I don't understand something, I don't go, oh, well, math is just stupid. I tend to go, maybe I'm the idiot. Maybe I don't understand it. But there's, there's something about it that I really can't put my, my finger on. And I don't know if that's a compliment to your writing or if that's maybe my brain's going at an early age, but there's, there's, you know, there's a, there's a clarity to, you know, masters of death, Einstein's group, and I'm, I'm following it through. And And maybe, I don't know if this was the intention. This seems more of like this weird, disparate, set of events where instead of for instance like walking up to like a you know you walk up to the ledge of a pool and there's air and you can dip your toes in and there's water and you can pull it back this feels more like you're walking into a storm where all of a sudden like the moisture levels kind of next thing you know like it's misty and you're kind of cold and it's on the window but there was never a moment where it started raining it's just like the humid that's the only way I can kind of describe this is like walking up to it. There is never a clear demarcation at the beginning or the end. And again, I don't know if that's a critique of myself or your writing, but if if you could kind of run with that. Well, you know, when you're writing a book, particularly one that's involved with a lot of different historical events, you look for a clothesline, you look for, maybe a character, maybe a theme, but something that will follow through the whole story and hold everything together. And I don't think this book quite has that. I I did find some characters, and so it tends to go from one group of people to another group of people to a third group of people. The one link I did find that ran through the story really was a love story among between two totally unknown people, an English nurse and a uh, German Quaker carpenter, I think he was, who met in uh, Madrid almost by accident and fell deeply in love. I know I'm confusing two, two different love stories. But he wasn't the carpenter. He fell in love with some with a poet named Muriel Rukeyser. But rather, it was one of the one of the Spanish soldiers fighting for the Republican side. Republican side was the side of the government that had that had been uh, put in place in Spain in the early 1930s. That was democratic. It was a composite government. It had the Communist Party was part of it, and some of the rather conservative Spanish parties were part of it, some of the liberal, they all came together. But they were opposed to the developing fascism, which was embodied in Francisco Franco, who was the guy, the general who ran the the fight against the legitimate government. So when I say the Republican side, I really mean the good guys. She came from England to help, as so many people did from the United States and Great Britain and Ireland, to help the Republicans. That was one of the things that was so moving and deep and beautiful about this war. 
she met this soldier, they fell in love. Uh, she was treating him for wounds, actually. Uh, later on, he's killed. She wrote a number of letters, so I was able to find her voice. And it was that was the one connection that I really found throughout the story. But of course, Hemingway's in and out. He's there, I think, three times. The war began in the summer of 1936 and ended in 1939, not very long before the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, there were those who felt that the Spanish Civil War, had it been won by the Republicans, might have forestalled the Second World War because it might have convinced Germany which was using the Spanish Civil War as kind of a test bed for all of its new technologies. Mm -hmm. The Luftwaffe and, and uh, artillery of various kinds and tanks and so forth. <coughs> Excuse me. All of that was under development and, and tried out as it were during this war. So there was some continuity, but it wasn't the same kind of clear continuity as I think my other books on these subjects has had, just because there were so many interesting people. I mean, Hemingway was back and forth, as I said. He wrote a lot of dispatches for the newspapers uh, that were appearing in the daily papers in the United States. He was holed up in a hotel, the Hotel Madrid in downtown Madrid, smart enough since <laughs> so the back end. There was artillery up on the hill above the city that was firing down into the city. And he realized that the front of the hotel was was within range. So yeah. he took a, an old and rather dirty room in the back of the hotel when everyone else was up front, all the other correspondents. But he, of course, being a great scavenger, uh, was able to get all the whiskey he needed and 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 wonderful food. He 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 had friends who would go out and midnight requisition this stuff and bring it in, and he had a complete haul of everything he needed. So, yeah, and of course, Martha Gellhorn, who was maybe not as well known now as she was then, she was an absolutely marvelous foreign correspondent. They fell in love. They had an affair during that time, out of which Hemingway built what I think is his best novel. Uh, and that is For Whom the Bell Tolls, which subsequently, of course, was made into a wonderful film with Gary Cooper and Ing Ingrid Bergman uh, playing these two doomed lovers. Just it was such a rich moment in, in history for all of its terrible tragedy, for all of the lives that were lost. Yeah, there's nothing more hardcore than choosing a, a, a room in the hotel. <laughs> with this with the same sort of nonchalant nature that you'd say like oh this spot's great you can really see the sunrise from here but it's like it's like no the the artillery is really destroying that part this back room is fine like just come on in like but that kind of sets the tone right because they even talk about whenever you saw them there was like this feeling of like what adventure are we going on you always knew yeah. that you were either gonna like get in a fist fight or you were gonna be drinking till dawn and oftentimes it was both yes right and hemingway was very much that way of course he was an alcoholic but he was also writing and writing in a way that other correspondents were dazzled by i mean for a daily newspaper to write 
16 drafts of a news story is just unheard of, but that's what he would do because he was writing the way he wrote, which was very meticulously. Hemingway has kind of been pushed aside as someone who was a chauvinist and a loudmouth and a drunk, and he certainly was all those things, especially as he got older. But he was a superb craftsman as a writer. I remember once going through, probably For Whom the Bell Tolls, one of his novels, reading it with great admiration and learning from it as well. And I noticed that every chapter title had been carefully structured so that they were not simply different words, but grammatically different. So you didn't have a sense that he hadn't paid attention even to the titles of his chapters. That's how careful he was as a writer. And, and, and since he wove into For Whom the Bell Tolls, all of the extensive reporting he was doing, sometimes with very little change. I mean, that novel is partly reported and partly invented. You get a really deep, rich sense of what that war really was, despite the overlay of the romantic relationship between the two, two characters. Do you think there's a little Hunter S. Thompson in there? A little gonzo journalism? Oh, yeah, definitely. Blurs yeah. where he blurs like he has a great quote where he's like uh he's like you know i I heard a rumor that like richard nixon's like a, a cross-dressing cocaine dealer and somebody's <laughs> like where'd you hear that and he's like i started the rumor and it's like it's like what but you 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 kind of get and but when it's all said and done i mean there's almost this sort of like it doesn't matter if the writing's good the writing's good he gets the feeling of the war and if he has to embroider in order to do that, and he did embroider, especially the character that was really Mr. Hemingway, uh, the one who was played by Gary Cooper, whom he told Cooper he wrote the role for in the novel. He had Cooper in mind because by then other, other works of his had appeared in Hollywood and he knew these people. Uh, but when he's, writing about the Gary Cooper character, what's his name, Jordan, uh, when when this, this young explosives engineer goes up into the mountains for 10 days, actually Hemingway went for five. <laughs> I mean, it's that sort of thing. And in his news dispatches, he talks about, we were 10 days in the mountains. Yeah. I was able to put the dates down and organize them on a chart and figure out when he was where he was, he said he was, and when he wasn't. So Call him he, out on his he BS. He was his own myth while he, while he fictionalized the story itself. But some of the stories in there, like the time when the Republicans, you know, they killed about 6,500 priests in that war because the priests, the Roman Catholic Church sided with the, the fascists and had been siding with the wealthy in Spain for many years before. And the, the, the poor in Spain, the communists in Spain, they were furious at the church furious at these priests. So they, they knocked them off right and left. But Hemingway has a scene that occurred. It's really a description of what actually happened where a bunch of priests are put together in a house and then they're made to basically run a gauntlet out to the edge of a cliff and, and shot as they go by dozens of them. 
and they're panicking and they're crying and they're weeping and they're begging and all the things that you would do if someone told you you're going to get run a gauntlet of people shooting at you. So they end up in a big pile down at the bottom of a cliff. And Hemingway puts that in the novel almost exactly the way it happened. So you can read the novel with a real sense of what the war felt like. This is true as well of, of George Orwell, who came down yeah. to, to cover the story and was there about six months and was living on the front line with a bunch of Spanish Republican soldiers living with lice and never getting a bath and eating terrible food. And then one day he's, Orwell was a very tall man. He stuck his head up above the, <clears throat> above the parapet and he got a bullet through oh. the throat that just grazed his vocal cords. <clears throat> Excuse me, it was about six months that he could only whisper, but that really, put the fear of God into him. He decided it was time to go home. Yeah. Then he had to get out of there with people in Spain watching for these foreigners and trying to decide what to do with them. So he and his girlfriend pretended they were British <clears throat> since and that was okay. They they managed to get out of the country that way. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me for no, you're, no, you're, you're good. Yeah, doesn't he talk but even the way he describes it. It almost yeah. it almost sounds comical. It's like, oh, there was a it's as if I was at the center of an explosion and a great rush of blood. And you're like, you're describing this like it's a new ice cream flavor. <laughs> but he got shot in the throat. Imagine, I mean, how lucky was he if that bullet had been a fraction of a millimeter in a different place? It went right through his neck and out the back without ever hitting an artery. Not, not the spine, not the brain stem, not the carotid, not I can see why he decided it was time to not push your luck anymore, but go home. It almost does. He wrote seem... this wonderful book, Homage to Catalonia, which describes all the absurdities of war. I mean, at one point he was assigned to defend a roof, a room in a tower of a building with a kind of a shelf roof outside where they could go out and sit when it was cold in the sun. And there was a matching team of, of fascists over on the roof across the street doing the same thing. And they made a deal with each other. They wouldn't, wouldn't aim. They would shoot because they had to do that, but they wouldn't aim at each other. The bullets are flying by and they're out taking the sun. That's the kind of, of absurdity. I wanted to mention something that Gertrude Stein sure. said about war, and she was around during this time too, of course. She said, during war, you're not responsible for anything. Yeah. A soldier particularly, you know, gives up responsibility for his life, his location, what he eats, when he sleeps, all of these things to, to the, the, the officers above him. And therefore, although it's terrifying, it's also in a strange way freeing because yeah. you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to worry about a job. You just can live if you've managed to stay alive. And I think it's that feeling that comes through when you write about this particular war or any war for that matter, but especially this little war. Like, it was um, kind of a trial run for the Second World War, not only technologically, but also politically. 
there's so I was gonna say yeah, it's almost it's like the freedom of prison, right? Like what am the my food's there, I'm the I'm the my bed's there. I go here, yeah. I do this, and it's yeah. Yeah. it's weird laundering. There's more freedom than in prison, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because you can you can break away for a while and go and get drunk with somebody, and yeah, nobody's going to notice, and then you come back and so forth. Do you think we're almost looking at it though with like rose tinted glasses, where it seems almost romantic? It's Hemingway's there, Orwell's there. They're drinking, they're sitting on rooftops, and it's all these, you know, oh, the bullet cracks over here, and we're sharing a bottle of this. And do you think we're almost looking at it through? I mean, obviously, war is hell. Yeah. Or do you think, I mean, it, maybe this is just my own myopic view of being someone born in 1990. Was life so bland that this was a great adventure? Ah, uh, it was the middle of the Depression. And this seemed a great cause. And, I, you know, I didn't really get into the experience of the Spanish soldiers because, first of all, I don't read Spanish. And second, the literature that I was looking at was all written by people whose primary language was English. And one of the reviewers, I remember, said, this really isn't about the Spanish Civil War. This is about the foreigners who came in and helped during the Spanish Civil War, which is true. So in a sense, that colored the whole story. And I think your question is maybe best answered by saying when Orwell actually took a bullet through his throat, he got the hell out. Yeah. He could handle the lice and he could handle the boredom of sitting on the on a on a at a guard post for six months eating cold food or whatever but but a, a taste of the real thing was more than he was prepared to to deal with and I would assume to some degree that was true of Hemingway except for him basically a deeply depressed human being suicidal almost all his life all his life really I mean if you go to the ending of For Whom the Bell Tolls, you find this absolutely strange ending where Jordan is talking to himself. He's been wounded. He's waiting for the, the enemy to arrive to kill him, hoping maybe he can shoot a few. He's down to just a few bullets. He's blown up the bridge that he was sent to do. And he starts thinking about his father's suicide and he talks to himself about, no, in that funny Stilton Hemingway internal monologue thing. No, you don't want to do that. Oh, that's bad. That, that would be something you wouldn't do. Yeah, he did that. And, and you realize that Hemingway, with almost no screening of the memory, is writing about his father's suicide. Yeah, It's totally out of place at that point in that book. It's one of the few passages in the book that just doesn't work. Yeah. I was so shocked when I got there because I remembered the movie where where the scene is, is right and it does work and they don't quote all those lines. Or it's really, what can I say? It's, it's, it was a strange, strange war. It's, it's, it's fever dreamish. Yeah, it is. That's a good phrase. It is fever dreamish over and over again. Could you go ahead? Could you maybe go in and touch on the the, the technological innovations? Because you, 
when you're saying it's it was almost like a like a dress rehearsal for World War II. Right. It was a proxy playground for for Germany. And then we have right, so we have all these foreign correspondents there, people coming from other nations. I mean, are are you not seeing like Ukraine with this? Yeah, no. Really? Yeah. Um, no. There were there are two lines that I would I would focus on. Okay. One has to do with blood transfusion, which is really quite interesting, and the other has to do with the use of air power. Yeah. The let's do the air power first because okay. it really did culminate in. And I mean, it came back to haunt the Germans in the Second World War, to be sure. <clears throat> Germany had been developing, Hitler had been developing an air force against the treaty that, that was signed, the surrender treaty that was signed at the end of the First war, World War when Germany was committed to not having a military air force. Yeah. So what they did was they invented the, the uh, uh, Blocking on the name of the Luftwaffe. No, no, the the German civilian line today. Uh, uh, Lufthansa. Yeah, Lufthansa. Lufthansa. Lufthansa was invented as a kind of a dual purpose uh, civilian service. Weird shell company. It was actually a way to develop <laughs> military aircraft. All those, all those trimotors that we've are familiar with that were the first real passenger airplanes, those ones with the kind of squared bodies of, of, of uh, rippled iron mm -hmm. frames and, and a motor in the nose and then one on each wing. The, that trimotor was like the first bomber. And in fact, one of its early uses, when Franco decided to attack the Spanish Republican uh, Spain as under the Republican government, all of his forces were in North Africa, and he had to get them across Gibraltar to Spain. And he couldn't really do it with ships because the Spain Spanish Navy was knocking off his ships whenever he tried to move troops across. So he flew to, he sent a delegation to Hitler in, in uh, Germany and talked Hitler into loaning him the Luftwaffe. Uh, Lufthansa, as it were, and they flew. It was the first military aircraft airlift in history. They flew Franco's main body of forces, some, some thousands of soldiers over from Spain to from uh, uh, North Africa to Spain using these Lufthansa planes. That was an example of how this plane came into military use during the war. But its real use was for the German Air, Air Force to check out bombing systems and particularly the idea of bombing cities. Mm. And the first and most famous of those bombings was a little town in the north of Spain called Guernica. It was chosen primarily because it was there. <laughs> and within range of the German Air Force, which by then had moved into Spain and had already taken back a whole half of Spain from the Republican forces. They were being pushed more and more toward the eastern side of the country, toward, toward uh, uh, toward Barcelona and all of that side of Spain. 
So the German forces were basically moving toward the north of Spain. And Guernica was sitting there as a nice, pristine target. So the planes flew in on the market day in Guernica in the middle of the afternoon when everybody was in town selling their crops and so forth and simply flew over and dropped a bunch of bombs on the city and started what the Air Force, German Air Force, the Luftwaffe had already been working on, which was firebombing. The idea was, as I think it was George Orwell put it later, they would come in and use high explosives to break yeah. up buildings. And make make kindling. And then they would drop six pound incendiary bombs all over the place. And I think another refinement was once the fire brigades got in and started trying to work on the fires, some more incendiary bombs killed firemen. Jeez. And they started a, a, a storm that killed the estimates are, are vary from five to 10,000 people or rather from two to 5,000 people, almost the entire population of the town. In the meantime, just to make this the kind of, here's an example of the complexity of this war, Picasso had signed on to do a painting for the 1937 Paris uh, World Festival, right? Uh, That would represent the Spanish Republican government but he couldn't think of anything to do to paint until he read in the newspaper about the bombing of Guernica. And then suddenly he had this subject and he began working on this huge painting. I don't know if you've ever seen the painting. It's in the, uh, uh, it's, it's in the Prado in, in, in Madrid. It's huge. It's the size of a wall. It's the size actually of a movie screen of the day. And it's painted in black and white, like a newspaper or a film. If you look at it, and I went to Spain, of course, to walk around and see all these sites. When my wife and I walked into the separate room in the Prado where this painting is on display, she burst into tears and so did I. The power of the painting I think of it as Picasso's greatest work, and I think it is. It has so many different elements of all of his themes, mothers in pain and dying children and and, and a bull that's, that's, that's been killed and is dying and so on and so on. And I spend a, a whole chapter in the book almost going over how he painted this painting because Fortunately for the world, he kept all of his earlier earlier sketches and drafts. And I just happened to have a facsimile set of all of these sketches and drafts. You can follow hour by hour across the month it took him to paint this painting. This is the man who could paint a major work of art in one day and often did. It's why he was so prolific and that it took him a month to paint this painting tells you just how rich and deep and complicated it was for him. In fact, at one point he calls up his Spanish government official who's been encouraging him to do this painting. And he says, when you need it, just come and take it. Just take it because it's never going to be done. Yeah. And I don't know if your listeners are aware of painters, but 
they often overpaint. They go too far. Mm-hmm. They can go too far with the painting. And Picasso always said, I don't finish my paintings because they're autobiographical. They're my, they're my day-to-day life. If you want to know me and how I lived and what I thought from day to day, just line up my paintings. Yeah. But for that reason, when he did overwork a painting, it was a mess. Yeah. It was just a total mess. You can see that. There's an absolutely amazing video that was made of Picasso doing a painting in real time on a big sheet of glass. And the camera is on the other side. So you can watch him laying in parts and scraping it off. And that's one that he overpainted. When it's done, it's just, it's an absolute disaster. And I'm sure he knows that, but he was just trying to demonstrate for this this documentarian how he put together a painting. But Guernica is that kind of painting and almost every one of his themes is locked away in there of one way, kind or another. And it's overpowering about about the destruction and the death and the violence of war. I'm, I, I was dazzled by the painting and I, you'll find a detailed description of its construction in the book. But that came out of his, Picasso was terrified of bombing anyway, for yeah. what reason I don't know. Although his mother's apartments were bombed at some point early on in the war. So maybe it came out of that, but but he put all of the really unbelievable depth of his feelings. And he really was one of the, I would say the greatest painter of all time, better than Leonardo for God's sake, in my mind. So that's just one of the pieces of this complex story. But it came out of the German decision to practice killing lots of people in an easy way by starting firestorms in cities. Mm And then, of course, much later, the same thing happens to the Germans when we and the British can't hit our targets with our famous bomb site because it takes three minutes to, in a straight line to line up that famous Norden bomb site. And nobody in his right mind was going to fly through all that anti-aircraft fire in a straight line for three minutes. So we were bombing cow pastures five miles outside of towns. And then we decided that we had to do something and we just went to area bombing, just like the Germans had it. So that's another example of how this little war was, was kind of a trial run for the big war. Same thing with, um, you mean, right with Tokyo. Yes. It was just, problem. it was the same exact thing. I mean, that's kind of what Curtis LeMay, that's one of the things he's famous for. And I had never known about it in the Spanish, but his whole thing was, it's a wooden city. Yeah. High explosive, use HE shells, blow it all to just chips, and then they come in with the incendiary jelly. It's like there's it's like six cords of, of jelly and thermite. Right. And drop it right on top of it and just right. to the point what I've what's the quote? Like the 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 bottoms of the planes, you oh, it, it was reflecting the flames. Yeah. And it, the pilots right. would say, even through like the circulation, they said you'd you'd smell burning flesh at 25,000 feet. Yeah, right. And uh, this was all developed originally in Germany. And in Europe, I should say, because we had a technological problem. We couldn't hit our targets with the existing technology. So we switched to with the the moral rationale that if you're bombing factories where workers are making ball bearings, 
act in order to stop the war effort and you can't hit those factories, well, the workers go home at night to apartments. Maybe oh, you could hit the apartments around the factories. And pretty soon it was just the whole city. I mean, the whole theory of, air, of strategic bombing, which is worth a few minutes talking about in itself, originated from an Italian officer who was stuck in one of these horrible trenches during the First World War. The trench, trenches that ran all the way from northern France down through Italy. There was a poet who described it as the long grave already dug, Jeez. which is a beautiful description for these endless trenches where you'd fight for months and move six inches in yeah. one direction, six inches back in the other. And Emilio Duhay was his name. Imagined if there was some way to go over the front lines and get back at the place where they were making the war material, that you might be able to fight the war and not be stuck for years in the mud and the rotting bodies and the trench foot and the poison gas and all the horrors of the war. You know, the, 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 the death camps that the Germans invented in World War II to kill Jews were basically reproductions of the gas warfare of the First World War. The same kind of, of idea that you kill people with gas in terrible circumstances. So you can just see how this 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 infection from the First World War extends out and takes over the Second World War in many ways. I was focused more on the, the ways that beneficial technologies came out of the, that war, which which maybe carries us over to the question. Blood transfusion. There were there was, of course, a lot of injury caused in the front lines in the war because artillery was being used in, in the Spanish War, as well as bullets, and people would have shrapnel injuries, major ones. The, 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 the medical service would then take these wounded soldiers and in ambulances and truck them all the way three or four hours to a hospital well behind the front lines. And almost inevitably, they would have bled out by the time they reached the hospital and, and they'd be gone. So there was a Canadian doctor who was a wild ass guy who was looking <laughs> for a cause. And he came into Spain with the idea of working in the front lines, but doing something more than that. And as soon as he saw this problem with men bleeding out, he thought, we've got to get, figure out a way to get blood to the front lines. And if, by, at that point in time, the only way blood was, was people were treated with, with blood was through arm-to-arm -arm transfusion, needle in the mm -hmm. donor's arm, another needle in the recipient's arm, and that way they would get the blood. Well, that worked in civilian life very well. In a typical city in Europe, there would be a list of donors. And if someone came into the emergency room bleeding and they needed some blood, they would type the blood. Blood typing had only been invented in, toward the end of the First World War at the Rockefeller Institute in New York. Before that, people were using all sorts of weird stuff for blood. They were transfusing milk. <laughs> they were transfusing blood and wondering why the person had anaphylactic shock and died. They didn't know anything about blood typing, but eventually 
by the end of the First World War, blood typing had found its way into, into medical technology. And, but, but it was still not something that had been, storing blood had not yet been developed. <clears throat> so this doctor started looking into it and found that if you treated freshly drawn blood with sodium citrate, basically vitamin C, it would could be stored in cold conditions for up to two weeks and still be viable to for transfusion without uh, and be effective. The Russians already had developed some of this technology because Russia is such a huge country and so much of it was then and really still is rural that getting again the same problem mm -hmm. getting someone who was bleeding into a hospital in the city just didn't work. So the Russians had been they'd actually developed cadaver derived blood. If you took blood from someone who had just died up to I think it was like 18 hours after death, you'd get five quarts of good blood that you could use for transfusion. I know you're making a oh, God. <laughs> and in fact, this Canadian doctor tried using cadaver derived blood and, and no one, everybody made a face and they decided they couldn't do that. It was just went against everybody's sense of kind of vampires and so forth. So they didn't do that, but they were able to, the women of Spain basically would go into a blood drawing center once a month, which is really too much, especially if you're not getting enough to eat, but it was the war and they wanted to help. So they would go in and, and donate a pint of blood and get a meal. That was the deal. You'd get some decent food. And then the blood would be treated with sodium citrate and stored in a refrigerator. And this doctor found that the most useful refrigerated vehicles that were immediately available were fish delivery trucks. So he had a whole fleet of fish delivery trucks, which had refrigeration in the back. He didn't have any specialized medical tech uh, containers. So he used milk bottles and wine bottles. And there are some wonderful photographs of all these beautiful Spanish wine bottles loaded with what looks like a really nice burgundy oh, sitting, God. Sitting, sitting on the shelves in there in the in the fish truck being driven out to the front lines where transfusions were affected and saved a lot of lives. This technology then became available just in time for the Second World War. Yeah. And this one Canadian doctor who was kind of a pain in the ass, he fi they finally threw him out of Spain because he was, <laughs> he was, he was megalomaniac. And the more he succeeded, the more he wanted to be grandiose about it. They sent him out on, on uh, tours to raise money at one point through, through Canada and the United States to raise money for the cause. But the technology as it was developed then was transferred directly into use during the Second World War and saved tens of hundreds of thousands of lives of American soldiers, presumably German soldiers as well. So that's one of the technologies that was on the other side. The other was the development of surgical techniques that had Anesthesia. The, the, the traditional way to deal with the, a wound in a limb at that time and for example the first world war was just to whack it off all yeah. it off there's a reason why all those those 
guys walking around with missing arms and legs were there. There was, there was of course, no antibiotics yet. The first antibiotic, which was sulfa, uh, came in just at the end of the Spanish Civil War, really a little too late to use. Well, some of it may have reached Spain, but by and large it didn't. But it was available for some of the uh, epidemics that were occurring in the late 1930s. And then again, sulfur really found its way into the Second World War. And penicillin, which was discovered in 1937, but not really produced in large quantities until early in the Second World War. So, as is a commonplace of writing history, wars produce new technology. And it's often good technology. Uh, sometimes, of course, it's war technology and it has the opposite effect. And there was plenty of that in all of this. Uh, again, the Germans had an anti-aircraft gun that was able to shoot up as high as 15 or 20,000 feet, very high velocity shells. And they discovered in the course of using it that if you aimed it horizontally, it was a master tank killer because of the, oh, the yeah. power of the shells. And these these 88s were just terrifying when they were aimed at you when you were trying to drive some primitive tank. Yeah, some Sherman, yeah, and Tiger, yeah. yeah. I mean, the tanks were small. They were not particularly well armored. Here's this high velocity anti-aircraft shell coming at you. So that was the other side. And of course, the bombing we talked about. Yeah, it's almost like a primitive <laughs> rail gun. Yeah, Just, exactly. You ever seen a, you ever seen Fury with Brad Pitt? What's this? See what? Have you ever seen the movie Fury with Brad Pitt? It's a global tank. tank. Yeah. Oh yes! Oh my God! Yeah. When I, you know, I was a little boy during the Second World War, and I just loved tanks. I absolutely was fascinated with tanks, and I'd never seen the inside of one. And not until that movie, I actually saw one earlier than that. I'll tell you that story in a minute. But that was so cool, just that, to see how those things worked. That I just remember. There's like one. I just remember one line where like one of the shells like ricochets off and you hear it whistling and it's like that's a crowd high velocity round but yeah that's a german 88 right yeah yeah right. exactly uh, when did you learn so, about yeah, yeah when did you learn I, about tanks when i lived down in uh half moon bay i recently moved to seattle which is why i don't have a copy of my book at hand we're still in the process of moving after a year of going back and forth and not being able to find any truck drivers to move our goods because of the the pandemic and so on and so forth. I won't tell you all the sad stories, but <laughs> we're almost ready finally to move into a house. But when I lived down in Half Moon Bay, there was a wealthy guy who lived a little farther south down in Portola Valley who collected tanks. He was that wealthy. He had one of every kind of tank you've ever seen. He would buy up old worn out tanks and then restore them. He had a warehouse full of old tank parts. <laughs> I mean, treads and gears and, you know, periscopes and everything you can imagine. He even had a few, uh, 
ballistic missile carriers that he bought from the Russians that with the ballistic missile on it. Topol, T O P O L, I think. Yeah, that one exactly. Like eighteen wheels or something. I asked him about it, and he said, "That's a long, long story how I got that into the." That guy's a CIA front. (laughs) That's yeah, acquisitions my ass. That's he's getting money from the State Department. They're reverse engineering that. Well, I think we knew all about it by the the government did, but that he had a private collection of every kind of tank. I mean, and I remember doing an interview, sitting on the tread of a of an old Sherman tank that hadn't been restored yet. I was in heaven. That's everything I dreamed of as a boy. Is it as like, is it as like like beefy and intimidating as you thought, or is it? Is, oh. Or is it like is it is it frail? No, it it was as massive. I mean, they were they were massive. Just a monster. <clears throat> Just the thickness of the steel and the treads. I mean, it was it was way beyond. It was more like the steel that's used to build buildings with that kind of thickness. It had to be right. It yeah. had to be really rugged. Yeah. They took a lot of damage. Our tanks at today run at 60 70 miles an hour they're in i've had on a, a, a it's hard had, to believe <laughs> i've had on a an m1 abrams uh oh. uh commander i think it was like the fifth episode i did but he you, you might like this so he told me a story uh <clears throat> the second time he came on and uh he was like we were all wherever maybe desert storm or something and they were all you know practicing at night on the range and he's like you know you're out there doing nothing all day every day there's not a woman for five thousand miles he was like you know most days no one does anything it's just a bunch of busy work and you know yep i did this and i did that and you know just they're all sitting around in a tank just for hours at a day and you're allowed to keep it just cool enough so you don't cook to death and uh he was like uh so naturally you know, being stuck out there, he was like, we would just get shit faced. We're just sitting out there because we're just sitting out there, you know, (laughs) you have, you know, you have several days heads up if you're ever going to be brought to the front. Plus it was, it was desert storm. It was just, that's what he said. He was just, didn't really have the same quaking in your boots feeling. And he was like, uh, you know, so we were all out there and we had, uh, you know, we'd only sneak one bottle in at a time (laughs) and just, you know, not to be stupid about it. And he goes, uh, one morning we get out there and, uh, you know, we get a bottle and we're, you know, we're just about to start boozing for the day. And for whatever reason, like they called on our tank, like you guys are doing, you know, or no, no, it was, it was, they came, like someone came to like, like they topped the hatch. So he goes, so we just, you know, we had been out there just immobile for like weeks. So he goes, we just, he goes, we just, we just opened the breach and just, put the put the bottle of vodka in and close it and they're and they're like you know the whatever his tank you know cobra one two like uh uh like test fire and it's a it's it's a night range you know so it's this these big abrams you boom boom and yeah. then, you know and there's hundreds of them so like they had time to like they're like looking around but no one wants to sell out the other guy yeah. and the only guy that wasn't in on it was like i guess the commander the top the top guy this guy was like second to top and so he describes it. He goes, so if our guy comes in and he was like, you know, you know, whatever, order, order that, you know, fire on target A. And he goes like, I look at like one guy and he describes it as 
who was trying to meld into the wall via osmosis looking this way <laughs> and like another guy looks at me and in slow motion we all just he goes we like open up the breach we put in the shell and you just hear think and he goes and we all hold our breath and you know then it's like they fire and he goes and it's in the middle of the night and you're out in the desert so it's just black yeah and all of a sudden a 25 foot blue flame shoots <laughs> at the end of this and he, go, he goes and then it comes on you cease fire cease fire and he goes but luckily because of the power of the m1 abrams turret there was no evidence so we, to this day we don't know what happened <laughs> <laughs> kind of an aside but oh, i thought it was yes. i thought it was funny it's one of my... here we are warren good come wars hell and good company yeah exactly we're not responsible someone has to tell us yeah. what to yeah and otherwise you... we're going to get shit faced basically yeah yeah and then and that's what they had been doing and so all of a sudden it comes up and they're like <laughs> just kind of well i'm not yeah, i'm not gonna i mean you know I, you know i'd rather be shot than sell out my brother so it's like they just put it all in there and he goes uh but it's funny because he starts the story and he goes now this story i'm going to tell you is entirely fictitious and involves no one i served with because <laughs> i have to tell the story but no he said it's crazy i mean he said those things that you get yeah 65 70 miles an hour they've got reactive armor on them and he's like it's yeah, yeah. Uh, uh he described what's the the coaxial gun he said it's he said it's like a it's like a weird sort of it's almost surreal to see a fire because he goes it's 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 like an automatic sniper rifle mm -hmm. he goes regardless of the turret he goes we all get caught up on the huge turret mm -hmm. he goes just a little machine gun on the front it's all computerized so you're you're going over hills as the turret's turning but you don't, it's not like you have to lead or anything because it does it all manually. So you put the crosshairs right there. Yeah. Rest of the thing is moving and it stays still and just goes like automatic sniper rifle. I don't know how we got onto tanks, but yeah. <laughs> well, obviously you like tanks too. There, there's For a little boy in a war. It's just those were the, the magic machines. Much more than planes, but, but you know tanks had their development during that war. World War One, or I was going to say World War One too. Well, just barely. I mean, you think about those early funny-looking weird it's like parallelograms. A, it's, like, it's just the tread. It doesn't yeah. have the turret on top. Yeah, down in the down where the tread is. That, those were those early tanks, but by the time we get to and I'm not sure what level of tank quality. Now I am. I've seen photographs. The tanks in the Spanish Civil War were not of any great quality, and they were not of any great size. Some of them were built. Uh, the Republicans built some of their tanks around trucks, basically mm -hmm. by just armoring trucks and adding a tread somehow, because they didn't have anything else. One of the problems was, of course, financing the war. Franco took a huge chunk out of the out of the gold that the, the government owned before they even were able to use what was left. And of course, Spain had a lot of gold from the, the 
the uh, robbing of the new world, if you will, in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. They still had a lot of their gold and they basically gave it to the Russians who supplied a lot of the machinery for them, just as the Germans were supplying technology for the, the fascists. Republicans were getting stuff. And the Russians fought on the, on the Republican side during the war. Stalin was also interested in seeing, well, in keeping Germany from getting too far, winning too much. He thought he might hold them off as well. Italy joined in the war and, and Mussolini was so interested in proving the power of the Italian military that he basically spent so much of his materiel on the war because they didn't do a very good job that he had to end his participation in the Second World War early because he basically ran out of stuff. Kind of the question we've been having about which side in this war in Ukraine is going to run out. And it yeah. would appear that even Putin has been pulling up stuff that he's had in the warehouse since the 1960s and throwing it in the direction of these, these poor cities with civilian buildings since he's basically trying to burn down the home. for broke, yeah. Yeah, doing, doing, the, doing it the Russian way, which is just to flatten everything. Just brute force. Kill all the men, rape all the women, and then you'll win the war. I don't know what he thinks he's going to have left. It's... So the war slowly constricted the Spanish war, slowly constricted the Republicans more and more into the corner of Spain where Barcelona is located. What is that? Catalonia. That's the part of Spain. It's over by France. And really the most interesting part of Spain, I must say that, and the, the uh, Basque country in the north, which is where Guernica is. We went up there as well. And... They also have that. They're a different population entirely. Sorry, I was going to say it's not 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 like historical. But doesn't Spain have that? Like they have the the twisting skyscraper. There's a famous, um, I think, the same guy that did the. Yeah, Frank Gehry built built the, it, the big beautiful museum in in. Uh, uh, no, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's Gary. It's. Oh, you're thinking of the turn of the century. Oh, like it, it's like there's something within like the last twenty years. Yeah. It's this big, yeah. twisting. I think it almost does like 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 two hundred and ten degrees. It's not finished until quite recently, but there are also uh, there are streets full of apartment buildings by the same uh, architect. Very strange and beautiful and twisting in all sorts of curious ways. There are apartment buildings like that as well. In fact, Barcelona and Madrid are two really amazing cities, given the collections of art. You know, there's a whole museum devoted to uh, Miro uh, up above Barcelona. And in it is one of the artifacts that was in the same uh, international event that, that Guernica was displayed in. And this was... Spain has a lot of mining. That's one of its main industries. One of the things that's mined in Spain is mercury, the liquid metal. And in order to celebrate the miners of mercury, uh, there's a mercury fountain that was built. I'm trying to think of the artist, the one who did all the mobiles. 
is an American artist. Sorry, my retrieval is slow. I'm trying to think of the only American architect. Art- uh, Frank Lloyd Wright? That's the only no, one. Artist. An artist. Artist. Oh. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, the same guy who did the wonderful mobiles that we're all familiar with was commissioned to do this mercury fountain. And he got something like 500 kilograms of mercury, a big, big amount of it was dollars worth in those days. And he built a fountain that's black and it has a series of, of, of pools. It's not big. It's, you know, about to say so big. And the mercury flows with that strange viscosity, oh, yeah. very heavy metal house flows from the top of the fountain down to the second pool to the third pool. Well, you're not supposed to breathe that no. stuff. No, <laughs> the fountain still exists and it's still on display at the Miro Museum up above Barcelona, but it's inside a big yeah. glass box so, so that the vapor doesn't. I was going to say, people who are working around it. I was going to say, that's not there with like your room. It was out in the open. It was in the same room as Guernica. And you can see photographs from that time. But (laughs) it's an extraordinary piece of work just to see. Again, when I was a boy, we played with mercury all the time. Yeah. We would break open a a thermometer. thermometer. And then play it with our hands and roll it around. I'm surprised we're still alive. I don't know how you're still alive. Yeah, it's, it's... I didn't, didn't develop a Mad Hatter syndrome because the Hatters were mad because they used mercury to make felt. And that's why the Mad Hatter story got started because they would get mercury poisoning and get brain damage. So it, it does almost <laughs> seem like a. Anyway, mercury and. This amazing fountain. This is all part of visiting Barcelona even today, and these these strange and beautiful buildings. It almost seems like some sort of like ancient spirit, right? It's like Mercury, and it's like this weird alien, almost yeah. like some weird like Terminator type amoeba. Or but some if you didn't... heavy planet where the liquids uh, flow uh, slowly and densely. Oh yeah, it's thirteen point six times more dense than water. Yeah. But if you didn't know anything about it, and you're playing with this weird divine, and all of a sudden people are going mad, that you could almost imagine where that would give like the idea to like these like alluring spirits, like they come at you with beauty and mesmerizing. But if you touch it, you go insane. Well, you know, I think Spain. And this is another quality of that war. Spain is a mysterious place. It was taken over by the Arabs back in the 7th or 8th century and controlled by the Arab world until 1492, believe it or not. That's when the Spanish finally drove out the last of the, of the, uh, the Muslims who were running their country. So it has that that whole Middle Eastern quality to it yeah. in its architecture and in the bright colors of things and so on. And then it has French influence and the Basque influence and the, all of these different things that came together there. A deep, deep tradition of terrible violence. I mean, the, the conquistadors who came over to the United States were f- 
free to kill and killed thousands and tens of thousands of Native Americans at that time. And that pervasive sense of, of uh, fatalism, finally, that's there also in the, the, the wonderful dance. What is the name of the dance that I'm sorry. No, I don't know. <laughs> well, the one with the you're I'm sure one of your your listeners will know when they hear this. So It'll fill us in. It's that marvelous Spanish dance with castanets and heels. The Macarena? Kicking. No, and heels <laughs> clicking the floor. Oh, uh you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I do, yeah. but I can't think of it either. <laughs> we're both we're, we're both we're, we're both maybe, fried. Maybe we did have maybe we did play with some mercury. <laughs> we're sitting here we're sitting here going, thank God there's no long term effects and people are watching this going <laughs> these guys are they started the podcast about the Spanish Civil War. They're talking about <laughs> tanks and mercury and we're like, Thank God there's no side effects. <laughs> so so there's all that quality in the background. I mean, this was basically a civil war. Yeah. And civil wars have their own particular horror because people who brother know each brother. other, maybe even are related to each other, are stalking and killing each other. You can still walk around Madrid or Barcelona today and see bullet holes blown out of all of the, con the, the stone walls where people, particularly in little squares, where people were lined up against the wall and shot. shot yeah. There are photographs of children playing uh, executioner and executed, where one gang of kids has playing a handkerchief tied around their eyes and the other have wooden guns and they're pretending to kill each other. And we played those games in the Second World War. My brother was bigger and older than I, and I always had to play the guy who got killed. I was the German or the Japanese, and he got to be the American who did the killing, which royally pissed me off. <laughs> he was bigger than I was. so. But, I mean, that's part of war, too, that all of that happens and people absorb the war that way. There were people who were locked up in prison all during the war, especially by Franco. Franco had 100,000 people killed after the war who were on the Republican side. 100,000 people, men mostly. He put them to death and then he built this huge monument, this pyramid as it were. It's a whole valley in Spain that's a monument to the wonderful fascist soldiers. George... Uh, there's another writer who wrote a book about all that period. I'll have to see if his name comes up, but people will know him too. Well, he wrote Darkness at Noon. But before that, he wrote a book about being a prisoner of the, of the fascists for a while and was quite sure he was going to be killed. So that's the other thing about the war, the amazing literature that came out of it. Perhaps exactly because writers were able to go in and out of the war. It wasn't where it wasn't somewhere else. It was in the middle of Europe. Yeah. You could take the train, you could fly in, you could be there for a while as an observer. And then you could go home and write about it. Not like the Second World War, where the front lines were for Americans, at least in other countries, across oceans. And if you were going to be a correspondent, you had to be vetted as a correspondent. Yeah. I've read some of the dispatches John Hersey wrote uh, 
as a war correspondent back to Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post and other magazines. And some of them are so racist, you wouldn't believe it. it describes the Japanese as like monkeys in the jungle and so forth, Delicious. which was part of the hatred and the propaganda of that war. But it's amazing to see someone who was later celebrated for his compassion in writing the famous book Hiroshima to have written this other stuff. But I think that's what he was writing and had to write in order to be there at all. I mean, uh, you know, Smedley Butler, the most decorated Marine ever, you know, he wrote the original uh, military industrial complex speech in 1933, War is uh, a Racket. And uh, I mean, he's, he's like this beloved figure. You read some of his like journals home from like the late 1890s is the kind of shit that would get you kicked out of the KKK. Yeah. And you're like, but here's this guy. And it was just, his dad was friends with like Roosevelt and he is just this like high educated guy. And he's, I mean, still to this day, it's the most decorated in the things he said, just so nonchalantly about like, Oh, how we have to just go like pacify the jungle people and live their brutes and apes. And like, we're just going to, you know, he's like, you treat an animal, like you treat an animal. It's like, they understand force. And you're just like, yeah, yeah. I know. That's what happens with wars, too. Yeah. It's the deep hatred, and it goes on for generations after. Yeah. And all the people in Ukraine who have lost family members, and in terrible ways, just being shot down by Russian soldiers, they're never going to forget. Someone said it takes 100 years to get over a war because everyone who was a part of it has to die. Well, I mean... You look at blowback with the United States, right? Isn't that wasn't that Ron Paul's term that he coined in like 2010? I don't know if he coined it, whatever. But it's like, but yeah, it's like, what do you think's going to happen when we, you know, we're trying to take out some Al Qaeda cell member? Sure. But you hit a you hit a wedding with a Hellfire missile, and then you have a bunch of guys my age who don't know a thing about the United States. All I know is you blew my wife and my dad up. Right. Yeah. I, sure. I will I will get revenge before I go to the grave. And then how do we see it? It's just me who doesn't know anything. And then all of a sudden a car bomb goes off in New York and I'm like, yeah. screw these people. Yeah. <sighs> well, yes, all around. Just... George Orwell said afterwards, one of the sad things about the Spanish Civil War is that it proved that the good guys don't always win. Yeah. Because, of course, the Republicans ultimately lost the war, took refuge in France, not a very welcoming refuge at all. Our people went home and did whatever they did. And then the war was just swallowed up by the appearance of the Second World War in Europe. In, Much like in, in September of 1939, just about six months later. Mm-hmm. So again, this doctor's wonderful memoir is sitting in an archive at the New York University and it's never been published and he's gone. I sometimes think I would like to dig it up and get it published because it's such a, a beautiful piece of work at describing what war was like from the point of view of a very helpful and creative and hardworking surgeon. I was going to say it's kind of a poetic, a poetic end to the podcast would be. He said it was swallowed up, and it's kind of like a droplet of mercury going into a going into a bigger one. It's I should be a writer. I was gonna say, um, you should do a book on tanks. 
that could be oh, oh wouldn't that be fun i, I think if i could find a publisher i am working now though on a book that will be of interest when it's done it's going to be a hard one to write and we're writing about the largest machine in the world the uh german excavator the large hadron collider oh, oh i'm thinking of the it's the largest uh part yeah, of yeah. the collider it's buried underground between it's like 28 kilometers wide or something it's 17 kilometers in in circumference and they're about to build one that will be a hundred yeah this what is it called it's like this, the super large yeah huge will be used as an injector for the big one and there are a bunch of other smaller ones that were developed over the years well no if you look at a picture of them if you look at the history of them it is kind of yes. funny yeah. you see like the original one and it's like a mile in diameter and then it's like the next one you see the right. lhc yeah i don't know what that is like the super super large collider it's really a, you know really unique name but yeah no it's supposed to be like a hundred kilometers in a the one in, that they're planning to build but right now they just restarted after yeah three years of boosting the power of the large hadron collider the lhc the one i'm writing about boosting the power and the the density of the particle beam uh -huh. they're now starting it up again and after a month when they didn't see anything and were afraid they'd reach the end of particles because <laughs> they keep identifying smaller and stranger and smaller particles in this process now they're starting to see all sorts of new stuff molecules made out of uh quarks yeah bizarre things like that so they're back in business we're going over there, we hope, at the end of uh, September to actually visit this thing. The the, the, the face of instrumentation, uh, the, where the beams come together and collide, getting, of course, twice the impact that you would get if you were just hitting a solid wall. The face is like six stories high. Oh, yeah, no. It's covered with instrumentation of various kinds. Because when these guys hit, everything goes out sideways. Yeah, all the pieces that are broken in out from these these protons that are being accelerated, and it's captured by all this giant disk of instrumentation. It's hey, going to be great fun. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I was, I was thinking as soon as you said that, I was thinking about Dark Sun, and then I, I'm like, oh wait, you, you wrote Dark Sun. I was about to say, but it's kind of evoking the powers of like of the sun, right? It's it's mankind same thing just tampering with like the fundamental physics of like what we understand to be real and it's yeah. well in this case it's really the more powerful the beam the closer they get to the conditions at the beginning of the universe yeah when when the the singularity that started the universe first winked into existence with an enormous amount of energy packed in a very, very small space, and then blew up to create the universe. <coughs> I know, it's really beyond. Even the new uh, telescope, and what yeah, is the web. Back closer and closer to the, to the beginning, uh, to the, the Big Bang. And you're just dazzled by what we're looking at and realizing these things long ago ceased to, Gone. to exist we're looking back in time yeah there is, i've been having those moments more and more recently maybe it's just because of the concussion i had two months ago but like really just stopping more and more 
and really trying to wrap my head around it all. I mean, really not, no, oh, yeah, those are stars and they're far away. I mean, like, yeah, it's not, it's not a representation. When you look at like, that's there. That, like that's that you'll see mountains in the distance. Just, oh, wow. Those are so far away. Like those are, you were looking right at them. Just these <laughs> light years of nothingness. We're so used to thinking of light as being instantaneous, but of course it travels rather slowly. When it's a unit of time, when it's a unit of speed, I mean, that's when it starts to, when time is a unit of, or yeah, when light is a unit, no, sorry, when you measure distances. Space time, it's called, it's it's linked the same way electromagnetism are linked. Together. Right. Right, you... But, you know, even more, to me, even more than the stars, at least you can say that's a star, and I've seen a star close up with my son. Even more than that is the whole question about dark energy. Dark, dark matter, matter, dark energy. Isn't it like 78% of the universe? 90% yeah. of the universe. You know what it is. And to which we have evidently appear as ghost-like as it appears to us. So, and what's that about? Where does that take us? That really, at some point, you just have to say, I'm just a descendant of monkeys. I mean. You do reach a point where you're just like, I'm going to watch a documentary about the M1 Abrams. <laughs> Screw it. <laughs> like, yeah. My brother and I used to tear up the living room. Yeah. My father, when he got sick of it, would say, you're just a bunch of monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like. I think he was right, you know. Absolutely. It's it, done pretty well considering our origins. Yeah. It's you do kind of Yeah, I'm I was going to say um keep going back to the tanks. Uh yeah. Hitler's tanks that he, you know what the the Maus MAUS they built like one prototype and then what were the other ones the 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 Rata R A T T E that was never oh, built. Right. Yeah. It's supposed to be a thousand tons, yeah. And then I think the 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 P fifteen hundred Land Cruiser, which was a which was the Schwerer Gustav barrel, but instead of on a train, they put it on treads. Oh, and they right. never they never built these things. It was, right. it was it was just his 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 methed out fantasies. But I guess my mind's still on tanks. Well, you know, we built a atomic cannons. Oh yeah. NATO during the sec during during the fifties. Yeah, they were going to fire atomic Annie. weapons. Yeah, artillery shells. Yeah, and we actually deployed some, and they just sank in mud. <laughs> <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't really use them; they were too heavy for the ground. In, in Central Europe, Central Europe is just one big mud pile. In some ways, it's agricultural land. So they were never very effective, and and the they, although we did have a uh, shoulder launched small cannon that was mounted on the back of a jeep. Davy Crockett. There the question was: Would the guys driving the jeep survive the nuclear explosion? Only if they backed up really fast. Yeah, the the Davy, the Davy Crockett. I think it was point one kilotons. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were suicide. They're they're suicide teams. I don't think they knew it, but they were. There's no way you get away. And then um, uh, one of my favorite things is is the Genie air-to-air missile in the Cold War, which I think really 
if you had to encapsulate the madness of the Cold War, the genie wasn't was an unguided air-to-air thermonuclear warhead. Yeah, right. But unguided. That's another story. We might talk about all that sometime because I've explored that pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Well, I get, Why I get. we ended up building all these different mechanisms for throwing nuclear weapons at other people. That's actually a book That's of years. Inter-service rivalry, very little. Sure. Oh yeah, it's all it's all pissing contests. Yeah. I was gonna say that's actually a book of years I haven't read. Arsenals uh, of Folly. Is that it? Uh, well, actually, Dark Sun has more about what we just talked about. It talks oh. about the whole development of the three triads, so-called, and yeah. how that's always celebrated as a necessary part of deterrence. How much that had to do with the. Air Force figuring out a way to get 47% of the defense budget in 1954. Yeah. Well, you have, you have Curtis LeMay who wants it all in strategic air command. And then you have, which is, you know, that's how you start dark sun. And then like, yeah. And then you have all the, the, the tank commanders and then you have the Navy who's like, no, we got to have it all in SLBMs. The whole thing was just a pissing contest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a budget contest before that. Was- yeah. Is the Air Force steal the entire defense budget from us? We got to come up with some ways to use these things. That's, yeah. Which tells, well, that's another story. I won't go there. (laughs) I was going to say, I think we've gone thoroughly off the rails. (laughs) Started with Spanish Civil War. Maybe Mercury does have an effect as we are now talking about (laughs) thermonuclear delivery systems. Um, Mr. Rhodes, I will uh, will text you this episode when it's up. I will put all of your stuff in the description as always and uh te- text me what book you would like to cover next and then we'll do that sure, sure. thank you so much it's always thank a pleasure you. talking to you and you it's it's so fun talking to you man it. it really is cool that i get to i just get to shoot the shit with you i mean that's so cool <laughs> thank you so much god bless you mr rhodes take care everybody <laughs>